So people need to understand that the lag effect is going to be extremely real in the first quarter, moving, moving past the first quarter into 2024. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. Many of the guests appearing on this program recently, though perhaps none more than I, have warned that the lag effect will eventually catch up with the economy. That the tighter monetary conditions, the higher cost of capital, the rising lending standards are all increasing the gravitational force pulling downwards on economic growth. That at some point, something important or multiple somethings will start to break. Is that indeed the likely scenario from here? And if so, is 2024 likely to be the year the lag effect arrives in force? To find out, we're fortunate to speak today with Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist for QI Research and author of the book, Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Adam. Hello. <laughs> well, look, um, it's such a pleasure to see you always, but uh, such a privilege to have you be one of the first guests to appear here on this new Thoughtful Money channel. Thank you for making the time to do that, especially while you're on the road. Um, I also just want to publicly thank you for uh, the guidance, support, and counsel you gave me going through this process. Um, you were definitely a big resource for me, and I just want to express how grateful I am for that. Uh, you know what, Adam, you are supreme at paying it forward. So uh, I learned from you long ago. No, you're just too kind, too kind. Okay, well, look, um, let's move on to the discussion. I got a lot of questions based upon your, your recent work. Um, but if we can start with the general, just sort of level setting question I like to ask at the beginning, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? So um, I think that we, uh, I, th I think that we inflected early I think Santa Claus arrived early and that we saw that in this magnificent outperformance in the month of November that was driven by the recession celebration. So, and, and it always works this way. The markets always say, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. We're going into recession. And every time that we've seen, which was the case in October, 2023, every time we've seen 50 US states, five zero, with rising state unemployment rates. And that is the case according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, there's a 51 total count, including Washington, DC. Uh, for those who love data, the only holdout in October with the non-farm payroll print was the state of Texas. So even though Texas had falling non-farm payrolls, they also had a falling unemployment rate, the only exception in the month of October. Now, the Bureau of Labor Statistics only introduced this series in 1976. So we only have nine precedents to look back on. But in nine of the nine instances in which 50 states had rising unemployment rates, the subsequent month followed with a rising national unemployment rate and a rising... Uh, excuse me, and falling non-farm payrolls, a negative contractionary print. I bring this up to contextualize the fact that following those 50 months, the first and second, and in some instances, third of those nine episodes saw the S&P 500 go up. Hmm. There is initially a woohoo, it's hats off time. The Fed's going to come right into the rescue. The mindset's always been there since 1976, that the Fed's gonna come right into the rescue, that there's going to be 
massive easing when you see that first negative payroll print, which might not be the case. You know, the United Auto, Auto Workers strike ended and the Bureau of Labor Statistics has been majorly monkeying with the data. But what we know right now is regardless of what the statisticians say, the United States economy is in recession. It appears that the biggest bond market rally since 1980 that occurred in the month of November pulled forward some of the Santa Claus rally effect into the month of November. And as you said in your introduction, we continue to celebrate the lag effects pushing the economy more deeply into recession. And it is indeed lag effects that are playing out when you describe credit markets. Okay, so um, if I had to put you on a team here in this game board, you would be on team lag effect. Is that fair to say? That indeed Absolutely. it is going to matter. You know, we've had a lot of people saying it hasn't really arrived that much yet, so maybe it's not going to arrive this time. I don't think you think this time is different. This time's not different, and moreover, we forget that in June of 2022, excuse me, 2023, June of 2022, quantitative tightening started, has not stopped. So the the lagging the lag effect that is that's based on the current tightening as we speak will play out later and the final rate hike of June 2023 will also play out with a lag 12 to 18 months into the future meaning one of the reasons that we say oh look the fed is pushing on a string is because when they start to begin to ease they're fighting an uphill battle of sorts because they're easing against the effect of the lagged effects of monetary policy so come June 2024 they're it could be the first rate cut. The first rate cut could come in March. It doesn't matter. Their efforts are thwarted by the lag effect continuing to push its way into the economy from whatever that last marginal level of tightening was. Again, in the case of quantitative, quantitative tightening, the one that continues. Okay, so I'm going to try to pull up a, a chart here um, just to what you are um, you just mentioned there. So Here's a uh, here's a chart that shows the federal funds rate, right? And you can see every major recession that we've had here um, was preceded by an aggressive run up uh, in the federal funds, right? So an aggressive tightening campaign. We then kind of hang out at this plateau for a little bit, um, and then the Fed realized, oh my gosh, I over tightened, um, or something's breaking, or whatever, uh, and I've got to run back to the rescue here, and they start cutting. But you, but you know, as they cut, the economy falls into recession, and it's falling into that recession because of the lag effect. That's when the lag effect is finally arriving at force, and it's like a raging hurricane where it's gonna just you know rage for a good while, and it's it's overwhelming. The Fed scrambled it to to cut rates here, so it, it takes a long time for those rate cuts to finally begin to net outweigh the lag effect here. So um, in many ways, I think you're just calling for history to repeat here to a certain extent, correct? Uh, that is correct, with the caveat that the average period between the final rate hike and the first rate cut is seven months in the chart that you're looking at. God love David Rosenberg. But the average lag effect is seven months. I don't foresee at least Jay Powell's Federal Reserve lowering the federal funds rate in January of 2024 call it, oh, I don't know, next month, Adam, but that would be your seven month average. 
Interesting. Okay, so let's let's talk about that for a second. Um, and I'm 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 torn here because there's there's two different questions I wanted to ask you, and you're kind of going to the second one first. Um, but uh, when you and I last saw each other, we were in New Orleans uh, at a panel, and on the panel, you said essentially that disinflation is currently in the driver's seat, right? And uh, you've noted in some of your recent work that it's not just a U.S. phenomenon, it's, it's going global. Um, you, at the, in the panel at, in New Orleans, raised the specter of deflation, actual deflation coming up. Um, so you said basically, look, um, uh, for those that uh, are thinking the Fed's going to cut and uh, you know, we're going to get inflation coming out of that, um, maybe, I think you actually said, you know, once the Fed really goes into full rescue mode, you know, that might be accompanied with MMT and all sorts of crazy things that could eventually someday lead to rip-roaring inflation. But that is not what's going to happen now. And that's not what folks should be trading on or positioning on. They should be positioning for first more disinflation and then potentially deflation next year. Does that remain the case for you? It, it does. Um, Adam, I'm going to throw a question out at you and ask you, what do you think the effect of the market would be if we woke up one day and it said, gee, month over month, inflation was negative 0.6, excuse me, negative 0.6 for the month or month over month, inflation was negative 0.4%. How do you think markets would react to such such an event? Well, I mean, I think they'd probably uh freak out because they are, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're in sort of a bad news is good news scenario, like you said, where, Hey, you know, if, if, uh, uh, well, anyways, go ahead. So France and Italy last week, a week before we filmed this, they had month over month negative prints just like that. So we are in a world already of developed nations experiencing on a month over month basis, deflation. I would argue for those who think that the Fed's going to be the first to ease, they might want to keep a closer eye on Christine Lagarde. France is in recession. My biggest uh, signpost for deflationary pressure is backlogs. Backlogs in any soft survey, whether it be S&P Global or ISM. In the ISM manufacturing report, backlogs fell to 39 here in the United States. That's a three handle, not a typo. And they're in the 30s throughout most of Europe, with France being the one who's falling into recession the most quickly. The second largest economy in Europe, with Germany saying on the morning of the day that we're filming this today, with Germany saying it looks like, given the service PMI, that we are going to stay in recession in the fourth quarter of 2023. Again, when disinflation turns into deflation, Adam, you had better get out of the way because it tends to ignite a negative, an adverse feedback loop where the credit conditions feed off of themselves. So you end up with, oh, I don't know, 23% year over growth in German insolvencies, making what's happening in the United States look like a walk in the park. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful of disinflation morphing into deflation. And that is one of the themes that we're looking at next year with a lot of people tempted to say, oh my God, the dollar is going to die. And I'm like, you need to watch other countries first and see where we are relative to those deflationary impulses setting off. And by the way, I'm just going to give S&P a shameless plug. They introduced the Canadian Services PMI, brand new index. It's flagging 
deflation. Okay, so already showing de uh, contracting warning signs. Um, so great points, Danielle. Um, uh, you know, sort of one of the truisms uh, is that uh, collapse happens from the outside in. It's, it's it's your weaker players that fall first, right? And so you're looking around the the global um, economic chessboard and saying, hey, you know, the, in the countries that aren't doing as well as the U.S the trajectory they're heading in is actually into recession and potentially deflation. I mean, you, you talked about Europe, which everybody knows has been, you know, kind of sucking wind for a while here, but, but now it's not just the smaller countries there. It's actually the big guys, you know, the France's, the Germany's that are really entering um, the, the danger zone now. So we can kind of look at that as, as probably a preview of coming attractions to us here. Uh, we can, I mean, I, I would, um, I, I would just put a disclaimer in there that, that suggests that Asia's stabilizing. Now, I would not say it's it's rip-roaring and it's going to fly into recovery, but it is stabilizing. The situation in, in Europe is, excuse me, in Asia is stabilizing. So we also have to be cognizant of that being, having, you know, its influence on the global economy. But again, it's all relative. And in our world, we, we tend to think in terms of the dollar, the euro, the dollar, the euro. Okay. And, um, you know, it is interesting. And I think you and I have talked about this in the past, which is, you know, when we fell into the, the global financial crisis, um, you know, Asia, largely China, was kind of there to ride to the rescue, right? You know, they, they had a very relatively, a much lower relative amount of debt uh, in China at that time. And they basically just went on a, on a borrowing binge that kind of helped pull the global economy out of the global recession. Looking around, we don't really have somebody positioned to do that this well. So like you said, Asia's maybe stabilizing, but they're not showing signs of strength and they're certainly not, you know, growing at historically high rates here. So there really is no no tractor beam to pull the global economy out this time, right? I mean, it was kind of fascinating to see Moody's Investor Service have a leak several hours before uh, their formal press announcement that they were going to be downgrading the sovereign debt of China due to its over indebtedness. Uh, and it was a leak six hours prior to, to the release, but the immediate effect that it had on copper. So again, mm -hmm. in 2015, 2016, there was this massive global industrial recession, similar situation in 2008, 2009, and China came riding to the rescue of South, South America, so many e exporting nations of resources. That's not happening. Right now, they're just trying to hold things together. Okay, so um, if you think that uh, deflation is the, the, the bigger worry for next year, Let's now trundle over to the Fed, right? Who's trying to engineer this soft landing and try to keep confidence in this butterfly, you know, soft landing that's going to happen. Um, what do you think is more likely? Um, it, it sounds like you think the Fed will actually achieve its inflation target because we got to be worried about deflation. Is it going to be able to claim victory and say, yes, we tamed inflation? Or um, is it going to be more um, along the path to, to that? trying to happen at these high interest rates, this high cost of capital, the lag effects, uh, you know, is it is it going to be more something breaking, right? So it sounds like Fed policy eventually is going to change at some point, right? It's either going to achieve its mandate or something's going to break. Which do you put your money on more? So, um, so what we're seeing play out in commercial real estate because of what I call the WeWork effect, which was the acceleration of a typically slow moving 
fallout victim of any credit crunch. Because of the WeWork effect accelerating kind of the exposure of, gee, that underlying collateral isn't worth squat. We thought banks had issues with unrealized losses on their risk-free assets. Good God, look at their loan books. Mm -hmm. So that was a 2023 story accelerating into 2024, but we've actually got non-financial refinancings to concern ourselves with in 2024. The high yield bond market, uh, the investment grade bond market, there's a lot of debt to be refinanced in 2024, companies have had, well, I don't know, over the last 40 years, the luxury of being able to preemptively refinance their debt if they get inside of a 12-month window. And we really are talking about March, April of 2024, when high-yield issuers get inside that 12-month window, when things really pick up in, in the spring of 2025. If I'm a credit rating agency, if 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 I'm an, if I'm... Price Waterhouse Coopers, PwC, I can reclassify that debt that's inside of a 12-month refinancing window as being a current liability. Talk about effect on credit ratings. So people need to understand that the lag effect is going to be extremely real in the first quarter, moving, moving past the first quarter into 2024, around the time the market right now is hoping for that first rate cut out of Jay Powell. They're hoping for that March FOMC meeting to be the first rate cut of 25 basis points. All right, uh, there's a lot I wanna dig into there. Um, so the question I wanna get to is, um, do you think the market's gonna be disappointed with that timing projection? In other words, do you think Powell is gonna cut that soon? Um, but before we get there, you talked about basically the maturity wall. Right where we have all these corporations that are going to have to eventually um, uh, refinance at what will be higher, substantially higher rates. I mean, I think on average, probably more than twice what the debt they currently have on the books is costing them. Um, and you talked about how uh, that doesn't happen when the company, uh, when that debt matures and the company has to borrow. It, you actually begin to see the effects before that, uh, because a you could have things like the, the credit agency credit rating agencies starting to download, uh, downgrade these companies but also you just have the boardrooms of these companies where they're looking at you know so far they've been sitting on the, the cheap debt and just sort of hoping that oh hopefully our buddy pal is going to come through for us and, and and bring rates down so by the time we have to um uh refinance things are going to be low again um but but if not then they're looking at that compressing time frame and saying you know what we're all of a sudden going to have a, a big hit to our PL from this interest expense. We got to preemptively figure out how we're going to jettison some expenses out of this company so that that thing's not an existential threat for us. And that's where you begin to get into the layoffs story. All right. And that's, I think, one factor that's been keeping things coming along in many ways much, much more sustainably than folks imagined could, could happen. And that's just because companies haven't been shedding employees at a big enough scale to matter. You and I have talked a lot about the increasing uh, layoffs that have been going on, and you do a good job of sort of highlighting them on your Twitter account, but they haven't really been at the level yet to push the unemployment up rate up to the point where folks are starting to worry about it. But that may be coming from here. So I'll, I'll take a beat here, but but um, are you sort of expecting uh, sort of a tsunami of... Um, a lag effect related impacts as this debt maturity wall really starts to become real over the, well, I guess sort of starting Q2 of next year, like you said, that's when people really start to have to face the music on this. 
Right. And and I I think that that's why you're seeing this bizarre phenomenon of companies trying to buy their their debt back out of open markets and being labeled as defaulting defaulters. So th- th- there's there are there are some signs of desperation. But to your point, uh, the founder of DailyJobCuts.com, which I'm constantly singing his praises because he's combing the landscape of the entire country looking for, oh, gee, there's 13 Rite Aid stores that are going to close. Or, oh, well, there's the Remington gun factory that's going to be closing in upstate New York and they won't be unionized anymore. They're they're relocating to Georgia. That's 270 employees. Or a mom and pop diner in Culver, Indiana is closing. So from the smallest businesses to the small medium enterprises to the largest companies to layoffs, this, this guy manages to really do a great job of tracking not just layoff announcements, which we're used to from Challenger Gray and Christmas, but mm-hmm. also closings. So in November, 2022, he tracked 139 closings. In November, 2023, seasonality went to hell in a handbasket and he, he tallied 280. A month earlier than we typically see the baby with the bathwater effect, of December and January are always your biggest months for companies just absolutely cleaning house. But we right. saw that early this year and it manifested very clearly in the bond market and falling bond yields. Because remember the bond market's always a step ahead of the stock market, but something as micro and granular as what I just described played out in a great big bond market. But again, we're seasonally weaker than we should be heading into the seasonally weakest months of the year for layoffs and for company closures. Hmm, really interesting. And of course, uh, the what happens in those small to medium enterprises um, is actually much more important employment-wise than what happens in the big corporate layoffs, just because it's the fleet of small businesses that represent the majority of jobs in America. So even though, you know, when Facebook lays off people that that gets the headlines, but what really matters is, is what's happening across the overall fleet. Um, super interesting. So you, you mentioned the phenomenal November that both stocks and bonds had, but bonds now look like they are not going to have that unprecedented third down year in a row, or at least U.S. Treasuries don't look like they're going to have that unprecedented third, third down year in a row. So to your point, the, the bond market may be sniffing something out here. You said that's where the much smarter money tends to hang out. And interest rates are um, heavily influenced by inflation expectations. And maybe the bond market is waking up to your outlook, Danielle, where it's thinking, you know, inflation actually might be a lot lower next year. And so we need to start reflecting that in bond prices from here. Um uh, I'd love to get your response on that. And then let me tie that to the question I was going to ask, which is. So what do you think what do you think the Fed's going to do from here? In other words, um Powell has still been saying higher for longer. Do you expect him to cut as soon as you said the market was thinking kind of around, you know, beginning of Q2 next year or would he only do that if absolutely forced to at this point? So I think um I think there was definitely an overreaction to uh to Powell following the lead and it it almost always happens this way. Chris, Christopher Waller is is his chief lieutenant. He's is as close to being Powell's uh, mouthpiece, and markets reacted appropriately to uh, to Waller signaling that the Fed was ready for a third consecutive pause. Uh, Powell validated that viewpoint, but I think markets definitely took it one step too far in in a different sense. Adam, markets could be right about Mar- March. Markets could be right about May. 
but I'm following quantitative tightening mm -hmm. because Powell has stated clearly, even if we start to lower the federal funds rate, I want to continue pressing forward with shrinking the Fed's balance sheet. It is the shrinkage of the Fed's balance sheet, especially after the reverse repo facility is completely depleted or close to being depleted, that you'll all of a sudden start to feel with a much greater magnitude is the effect of quantitative tightening. We've seen other deposits on commercial bank liabilities. We've seen them fall from just shy of 17 trillion to about 15 trillion. A lot of liquidity has been depleted from the system. It's his aim to continue on that path uh, unless markets do something very systemic in nature. And it would be reflected in the credit markets and issuance markets freezing up. My point is, a 25 basis point rate cut ain't going to do diddly squat for a chief financial officer who's looking at a doubling of right. his refinancing rate, not squat, not squat, squat, squat. So that's super, super important. Um, you mentioned a number of things here. Um, so one is we might get a rate cut as soon as folks are hoping here, right? Um, but it, 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 it may not matter, meaning it might still be a hawkish world, right? Where QT is still, still happening here. Yeah, so, so the, 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 but it's still high. Right. But the narrative is, is, oh, once the Fed starts cutting, then it's back to unicorns and rainbows and liquidity for everybody. And you're basically saying, no, it just might be slightly less expensive debt with continued tightening going on. So the beatings may very well continue. Um, and I think that's just a really important mindset shift for those that are in the like, oh, team pivot means everything's awesome again. I mean, um, it's like, oh my gosh, we're only going to be flogged five times today. So instead of six, woo! Yeah, exactly. Just kind of like disinflation doesn't mean that inflation is over. It just means it's not growing as much, right? And, and, um, and that's, so, so shameless yeah. plug, I am not insensitive to to built up inflation in the system and the fact that a loaf of bread or a gallon of milk is still way more expensive than it was prior to the pandemic. That cannot take away from disinflationary and deflationary forces manifesting in something worse, which is no income at all. So I just, I wanna be clear about that. I'm not insensitive, but what I'm cognizant of is the effect that disinflation and deflation have on people's paychecks, which sometimes go from something to nothing. Yeah, um, all right, I wanna go into this territory with you. Let me just put a pin in the question I was I do want to have you clarify for folks. You mentioned the reverse repo facility, and uh, maybe we'll answer this first, then we'll we'll get to the other one. Um, and I don't think many people, many regular people, really know what that is. So maybe if you could just define it super briefly. But basically, that's been coming down. It's been providing liquidity. Uh, it's been a source of liquidity in the system here. Um, so if you can explain how how it's serving as that, and then it it. On its current trajectory, it is going to get depleted, and it is not going to be net helping. And then the tightening, as you said, will really be felt uh, more intensely at that point in time. So, can you just sort of explain the role that the reverse repo facility is is performing here? So, um, I'm I'm going to put on my analogy hat as a, a as a third generation gearhead. So, hmm. when the Fed was raising interest rates, uh, what they were doing was they were building up. The, the thickness of a shock absorber. So a lot of money market funds said, hey, I don't want to buy a treasury bill if and, and lock my money up if I know that within six weeks, the Fed's going to raise interest rates again. So I want to continue to take advantage on an overnight basis of a growing shock absorber, of 
getting more money on an overnight basis. Well, when June rolled along and there, there was, you know, that was the last rate hike. And, and then there was the pause and then another pause. And then every time there's been a pause from the perspective of a money market fund, the thickness of the shock absorber has gotten thinner and thinner and thinner because if the Fed's not going to be raising interest rates anymore, by golly, you better hurry and lock in the shortest term rates you possibly can in treasury mm -hmm. bills, which Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been altogether too happy to sell. But every dollar, every tr every hundred billion of dollars that bleeds out of the reverse repo facility because money market funds no longer see the Fed is raising rates. So they're saying, I'm going to go buy those bills that Yellen's selling so that I can lock in a high rate. And just in case, God forbid, we start to see that the Fed's actually going to be lowering interest rates. We really don't want to be in, the, in this reverse repo facility because then instead of a shock absorber, we're going to be falling into potholes mm. and actually not making as much money on treasury bills as we could have locked in. But once that's depleted, then treasury bill sales will start to pull money out of the broader financial system. It won't be depleting this repository that was sitting out there. It will actually be pulling dollars out of the system. So you'll start to see an effect on bank reserves, which we have not seen yet, but that will be the case. All right, uh, thank you for doing that. So at the current trajectory, just ballparking it, when will it be depleted? So I, th I think Barclays put um, an estimate out there that suggested it was, I think, maybe going to be in May. Don't quote me. Um, but but I believe it's a matter of months. In fact, we did see a little bit of an uptick in the facility. Uh, so I, I believe it's a matter of months, but not many months. Okay. So sort of and, like a quarter again, or two. Yeah. It, it, yes. A quarter or two. And it coincides with, and it shouldn't, there's no coincidence. It should coincide with when the market is anticipating rate cuts to begin because then you would be you you would be penalized for being in the facility. Okay. The overnight right. rate falling. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for for clarifying all that for everybody. Um got my prom Daniels have so many great questions I want to ask you. Um limited time, but I'm gonna keep trying to do the best I can here. You mentioned not wanting to not appear um insensitive insensitive to the the real pain that deflation can cause right um and uh i'm going to lump recession into that as well um and i i just the video that that was appeared in this channel before this one's going to appear danielle um I was talking with wolf richter who um full transparency um I think has a different recession prediction than you. He doesn't, he's not super confident what's going to happen next year. But that being said, he really thinks one should happen next year. Uh, and we talked about sort of the deformation that the business cycle has experienced pretty much over the past 20 years due to a lot of intervention, right? And recession is a healthy part of the business cycle. It's what gets rid of the malinvestment, right? It, it's it's what keeps uh things from metastasizing to the point where they can bring the entire system down or just create a lot more pain for people. And for a variety of reasons, um, our central planners have decided that they really want to try to do away with the business cycle and just have it sort of be eternal summer. Uh, and sadly, many consumers like summer, right? And so have sort of been cheering them on. And we've gotten into this, this you know, uh, trap of 
well, every time winter threatens to arrive, the central planners, you know, pump in a ton of liquidity. Uh, and the consumers have gotten to the point of saying, expecting that and sort of demanding it, right? Hey, we want more liquidity because we have bills to pay today, right? But of course, that then ends up creating things like inflation. And you get in these, you know, weird scenarios where consumers are demanding more of the thing that created the problem that they're having to deal with, right? So I think people like Wolf, I would put myself in this camp. And my question to you is, are you in this camp as well, where, yes, there's a real human cost that comes to recession and, and when natural market forces of deflation take over. But to a certain extent, you know, maybe this is just the tough and needed medicine that we we really need right now. And, and if we could take the lumps, but then get back to a more normalized, you know, business cycle, it would be better for everybody. And if we could just, you know, demand it as a populace and embrace it as a, a leader of, uh, or a, a group of elected leaders to say, yeah, just like we've done in past generations with this country, yeah, there's an important war to fight or whatever. Like if, if, if we want to, if we want to have a better tomorrow, well, we got to tighten our belts and we got to mutually sacrifice a little bit to, to, to let the malinvestment clear, but we will all be better off in just a couple of years from this. You're sort of nodding as I'm saying this, but am I sounding crazy to you or is, or is, is this a song sheet that sounds, you know, I mean, similar I, to I, the one I, in your head? I've never been a, a I've never been a Keynesian. I've always I've always kind of been in the von Mises camp of the world, and 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 do believe that that is um, that 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 creative destruction is a healthy force, and that when you get uh, when you expunge from the system, un unprofitable poor business model companies, you actually make way for new entrants who are going to end up hiring more employees, and so that the creative destruction ends up creating jobs in the end. It, it, it becomes a virtuous cycle of sorts. Right, and, and sorry to interrupt, but it also gives an appreciation for risk, right? People don't take stupid risks when they know that there's the potential to be held accountable for them, right? That's absolutely, that's absolutely 100% correct. Um, the part I don't want to be insensitive about, though, is we have seen, um, of course, we've got bankruptcies running at the fastest pace since 2010, large company bankruptcies um, in 2023. So, but what we're also seeing is this phenomena of companies having used up so much of their runway in, in, in uh, using the runway as their balance sheet. So they're so over indebted that many of the bankruptcies that we've seen in 2023 have segued into becoming liquid liquidations. Mm -hmm. You could say liquidation is the most extreme form of creative destruction. And that would be true. Uh, that being said, it's it's a much more destructive force on the economy, and it's much harder on individuals against a backdrop of a Federal Reserve that hoovered up a third of all mortgage-backed securities, leaving mobility very much impaired, such that it's more difficult for American families to move to where tomorrow's jobs are in the current framework. And so there are there's so many nuances and different ways to go about looking at this, but I can't, I can't, I can't celebrate what I'm seeing on dailyjobcuts.com. I understand it, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, that we don't have enough. I mean, we, Adam, we don't have enough time to get into this, but private equity muscled its way into small and medium enterprises where it didn't belong. So you ended up with, with smaller companies, medium companies with more debt than they would otherwise have in prior cycles. 
Right. Totally, totally hollowed out balance sheet wise. I'm right there with you, sister. Yeah. So, so there's there we're paying a higher price now than we would have paid had Greenspan or Bernanke or Yellen had more courage. And the fact that the fact that his that, that Bernanke's first book was called The Courage to Act. I, I, I've always said the greater courage would always to have been to not act. Not act. Yep. And then, and that would put us in so much, but I mean, you, I read about repo men being run down with somebody with a gun. I mean, the, the current household default cycle, it's not, it does not make for pretty headlines. It doesn't. And, and, and people, it's, it, it, it's hard to watch. And we know that there's going to be kind of backlash to all this. I, I don't, I don't like what this recession is going to look like because there will be innocence as opposed to speculators taken down. Sure. But but if, if I can, I want to I want to press on the sensitive subject just a little bit more because to continue the status quo, right, of policy response and hollowing out and whatnot will only set us up for greater collateral damage down the road, right? So, you know, the, again, this is sort of the courage to act or the courage to take your hands off the system and just let natural forces take place. Now, you're a unique person to have this conversation with because you have worked with the Federal Reserve, right? So if, if, I, if I sort of made you empress right now, would you, I'm sure that you would, you would try to cleanse, you know, a lot of the excess in the system. Would you try to do that in some sort of managed way? Or would you, would you take more of a, it's going to hurt. It's going to maybe be two really painful years, but we're going to let the forest fire burn. And then we are going to, you know, rebuild from a much more sane baseline going forward. I, I honestly don't know the best way to, to deal with this. Um, I can make arguments on both sides, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Well, so we already have seen a year of forest fires, right? I mean, people have been, um, the current Powell pivot is the seventh in a row that's been called for since this campaign started in June of 2022. So Powell has held fast for a heck of a lot longer than most people ever thought he would. And he's only held on by virtue of the fact that it has been orderly. Mm -hmm. It's been one company going out of business at a time. It it you know they were able to come in with what's now a $113 billion facility and prevent a massive contagion throughout the banking system that would have required the Fed slamming the Fed funds rate back down to zero had Silicon Valley Bank com com completely unglued and we would have had all the dominoes falling and every single major regional bank across America fall, that would have been a disaster. And it would have prompted much more violent reaction uh, from the Fed, from the Treasury, from the FDIC, from everybody in Washington, D.C. you could possibly name to date the fire has not run out of control. The question is, once this reverse repo facility, which was once in excess of $2.5 trillion, once you, once you completely make this shock absorber go away and you're hitting the axle and you're hitting potholes, does something systemic crop up? And Adam, I don't know. I cannot answer the question. I don't know. We're too far into an experiment to say what the other side's gonna look like. But I can tell you that we're 75% of the way out of this experience and nothing systemic has broken loose. We haven't had a Lehman yet. Okay. Um, how much do you lie awake at night worrying that we are gonna hit one before this is over? So, you know, um, 
Jay Powell, and this is something that we should talk about on a completely different episode. Jay Powell right now is trying to push through regulations that would sever the very lucrative link between the non-banking system, call it $250 trillion, and the conventional banking system globally, call it $180 trillion. Um, as one of my friends likes to say, it's not a coincidence that JP Morgan's business model is 75% capital markets. So if we could possibly push through regulations that effectively cut the oxygen off of the private capital market, then we would be so much better off for it in the end. And I would argue, Adam, again, this is something that we do not have enough time. We do not have enough time to begin to explore Basel III endgame. Mm -hmm. If you end up taking away all of the speculators' toys, and that's what Basel III endgame is, it's taking away their toys. By the way, the toys only function in a zero interest rate world with quantitative easing running full blown. And that's why it's so critical that Jay Powell have a little bit longer to hang on. And perversely, that 75% of the people on my Twitter feed are wrong. And that that there's no stimulus check forthcoming before, oh, I don't know, March of 2025. And the inability to distinguish between forms of fiscal stimulus is an Achilles heel for the current public in Fintwit, if you will. But another day we can talk about regulations and how important they are. And again, removing the oxygen from the speculators. But in the here and now, if there's one thing that any of your guests on this wonderful new platform have not illustrated, illuminated, highlighted, it's the fact that the form of fiscal stimulus matters most. And if it ain't cash, helicopter money directly deposited into people's bank accounts, which immediately ignites inflation. It's not going to do as much for the economy. And this House of Representatives that's led by some crazy Republicans is not passing anything between now and when the next Congress is sworn in. Okay, great. Um, that's exactly where I was going. Um, real quick, folks, if you'd like to ask Danielle to be as generous as she can be in terms of coming back on this program again at some point in early 2024 to dive deeply into that severing uh, of the, the banking system's ties with the non-banking system, let me know in the comment section below. If interest is high enough, I will go back to Danielle and bended knee and try to get her to, uh, to sign up for a time uh, early next year. Um, yes. All right. This fiscal stimulus, um, what I've heard a lot of people say, Danielle, is because I've talked a lot about how um, the Fed and really the banking system have been putting on the monetary and, and uh, lending brakes uh, on the economy. Right. They've been hitting that pedal since Powell you know, started his his tightening campaign. Um, but fiscally, um, they've been jamming on the gas pedal. You know, we've had we've had you know, near record deficit spending this year. Um, and a lot of people have said, yeah, they're doing it because they can get away with it. And hey, you know, there's an election coming up in a year. And hey, they can just continue doing this, you know, up right up until the November election next year. You're saying you're shaking your head as I'm saying this. You're saying, no, 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 don't count on that, folks. So you just put your finger on the fact that this Congress is now a very divided one. Um, what other pushback would you have on that assumption that people are saying, oh, no, no, they can fiscally stimulate as much as they need to up until the election? 
Well, they haven't fiscally stimulated anything since September the 14th when the employer retention credit was put on hold. Now, the infrastructure, the, the CHIPS Act, the, the electric vehicle, the DEI, all this stuff. It's not that it's not deficit spending because it is, and we see it in a great big gigantic way. It's that it's not being delivered to households. And mm -hmm. if you're not getting the money directly, then you're still having to go through either the banking channel to deliver easier credit, that ain't happening, or you're having to go through some unionized pork belly traditional type of, of, of fiscal spending that takes a long time to make its way through the economy, is by definition not profitable and unproductive and, and bleeds its way out there. Now, what people perceive as liquidity, which is the depletion of the reverse, reverse repo facility due to Treasury Secretary Yellen selling treasury bills, it's a different dynamic and it's manifested in one hell of a November in the stock market. I get that. But as far as people saying, oh, they'll spend money right up until election day to buy those votes, that train pulled out of the station with the end of the employee retention credit on September the 14th, 2023, which at last check was about three months ago. All right. So very important note to take from what Danielle's saying, which is that if you've been sort of expecting the administration, Congress, et cetera, to keep the party going for as long as it can to improve its odds for the election, you're basically saying, uh-uh, because what really matters is the dollars that get injected directly into households. That's what stimulates the economy. That spigot is now fully shut off. Fully shut off. They reduced emergency food stamps. They reduced emergency Medicaid. The Paycheck Protection Program was a long time ago. The Employee Retention Credit ended September the 14th. Nothing is out there that is improving people's cash balance in their checking account. Nada. Okay. Um, Danielle, I could keep talking with you for easily another three or four hours on <laughs> just the topics we've, we've identified so far. I am going to have to land the plane here, given where we are time-wise, and thank you for giving us so much of your time. Always an excellent interview. Um, uh, let me just go back to Powell for a second, um, because uh, I'm going to give my assessment of your assessment of him, and then you can react to it. Um, I think you have, I think he has earned a fair amount of your respect over his tenure here. Um, and you can correct me if, that, if, if that's totally wrong, but it seems that uh, he has uh, had more cojones, if you will, um, to uh, certainly go higher for longer than for sure a lot of the people on the Fed itself wanted him to. Um, sure, he's been getting a lot of pressure um, to be a little bit more dovish. Um, you have talked many times about how uh, he's sort of been surviving successive rounds of Game of Thrones at the Fed. Um, he is doing some unpopular things, right? You know, this this thing that you alluded to about him trying to basically enforce regulation to end the party for the banking system. There's just some pretty powerful people that he's disappointing with that, right? So what's your Deadpool on this guy? How much longer do you think he's going to be able to stay in his job? Well, I think the last time um, that a case went up in front of the Supreme Court for trying to fire the head of a federal agency for cause, which Trump tried and failed to do, was 1873. So um, it's very difficult to fire him for cause. That's the only reason to get him out. And kind of like neither political party wants the filibuster, it's the best parallel that I can draw for you succinctly. And that is why uh, the Federal Reserve Board would do everything that in, in its power to keep Powell in his place until 
the firing for cause went to the Supreme Court so that that a future president couldn't just have willy nilly the ability to say, you're out of here, you're out, you're fired. Did I say that? Yes, I did. So mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve Board would probably keep whoever the chair is, whether it was Powell or somebody else, they would keep the chair in their place until the Supreme Court ruled on whether or not it was legal to have taken them out for cause, because that precedent is so old back to the late 1800s. So I think Powell is okay through May of 2026 um, when you're speaking of the Constitution. Okay, okay. Now, he may be uh, run over by a train. We, we forget that Paul Volcker... <laughs> yeah. that, that home builders would send Paul Volcker two by fours uh, and threatened his life. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying he's, he's not under threat. I'm saying, according to the Constitution and the Supreme Court, be very difficult to unseat him. Okay. And was I accurate in saying that that maybe he has, to a certain degree, um, earned more respect from you than perhaps you might have had at the beginning of his tenure? So he was confirmed by the Senate with 80 votes in May of 2022. He did an interview with uh, NPR Marketplace that day, uh, 14 times in that interview, and he never sits for interviews. He used he 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 cited the two percent inflation target. He has not backed down since he was confirmed. He lost my respect in his first term. He has regained it in my second term. It is his to lose. Okay. All right. Well, look, um, heading into the home stretch here, um, uh, I just want to ask you about your market outlook. We've talked a lot about your economic outlook, um, but what do you what do you sort of expect twenty twenty four to be in terms of a year for the markets? And are there any assets you know that you think um, you particularly favor going into whatever outlook you see? I'm going to guess you're probably a, a decent fan of owning treasury bonds here, um, given your deflationary and recessionary outlook, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, I absolutely am. And uh, and and bear in mind, the, the quicker inflation falls, the more real real rates are. Mm -hmm. They don't fall as quickly. So the tightening in that sense continues unabated. Um, I would certainly be looking for an unfavored class, and that is very high dividend payers who are not going to cut their dividends. So anybody who's got cash flow and pays a nice dividend, they've beaten that asset class to pulp in the most recent pure liquidity driven. Um, now we're on to, back into meme stocks, et cetera. So anything that's a bona fide balance sheet company, I would certainly be in favor of whether you're talking about their bonds or their stock if the dividend's going to stay safe. And I would think that the financial disruption that we've got over the near term horizon would continue to favor gold. That's a very controversial statement, but there I am. Okay. So um, things for folks to go consider, um, U.S. Treasuries, um, high dividend blue chip companies, um, both their stocks and maybe the corporate debt of, of those types of companies, um, and then gold. All right. Well, look, um, in, in wrapping up here, I've got a couple of questions I'm going to ask you just as we, we land the plane here. One I'm going to ask you in just a minute, and I want you to start thinking about it, is um, a new question I've just started asking um, our guests here. You're the second one I'm asking it of, uh, and it's going to be, um, what's a, what's a non-financial, non-monetary investment that you think you would encourage folks to consider investing in right now? Before we do that, though, very important question. Where can folks who've enjoyed this conversation um, go to learn more about you and your work? 
So please come to demartinobooth.substack.com. And I can, I can actually say that out loud here. It gets completely de deleted in what used to be known as Twitter. Um, but please come to my Substack space. Um, and if you're interested in, in, in our institutional following, then come to qiresearch.com, please. Um, and, and I'd love to have you as a Twitter follower at Demartino Booth. Great. Uh, and Danielle, when I edit this, and I am doing all my own editing now, um, I will put up the URLs to each of those resources up on the screen so folks know where to go. I'll also have links in the description below too, folks, if you just want to have a one-click access to those. Um, all right. Well, if you've enjoyed this conversation with Danielle and want to thank her for coming on and giving so much of her expertise and uh, show that you'd like for her to come back on this channel early in 2024, Please show that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And just a reminder, because Thoughtful Money is still such a new channel, our subscriber count actually really does matter in terms of getting the YouTube algo's attention. So if you can take a second and click that subscribe button, it's totally free to do so. It really will help us out. Uh, just like Danielle, want to remind folks about my new Substack. Um, I give lots of updates as to the whole Thoughtful Money Ventures journey on there throughout the week. Um, but I have also um, resumed publishing my Adam's notes, which are my key takeaways from these interviews. I take the notes so that you don't have to. And if you want to get mine from past interviews um, or this one here with Danielle DiMartino Booth, the premium subscribers get those notes. So to go to the Substack, whether you sign up for free or premium, just go to adamtaggart.substack.com. Okay, Danielle, now we're at the final question here. Um, you know, in terms of being wealthy, yeah, money money matters, but it certainly by no stretch is uh, the only thing to living a rich life. What's, what's a non-financial um, investment that you would encourage folks to consider making right now? So when you word the, use the word rich, I immediately think of family, uh, but I'm not going to use that as my answer, but that's always my first answer. Um, I'll say this in just a few words. Start in sales, the hardest thing you can do, start in sales and take the course in college you don't want to take. Take the hardest class you can imagine. Just do it. And those two things, challenging yourself to do the things you do not want to do will make everything in life on a relative basis that much easier. That is a fantastic answer. I love this question. I'm beginning to get these answers that I just wasn't expecting and they're great um those are two great answers danielle thank you so much for doing this um all right folks um in addition to uh this interview with danielle if you're still not done watching um as i, I mentioned that uh video i recorded with wolf richter earlier in the week who's got a bit of a different uh perspective than most of the recent guests on here it's a good challenge to our assumptions i'll put up a link to it right here so you can watch that afterwards danielle can't thank you enough everyone else thanks so much for watching thank you